many of you guys are planning to have some sort of advent calendar in your house this season? Just by show of hands, anybody planning on doing that? Not a lot of people. Well, that's interesting. So maybe you don't even know what an advent calendar is. I'll back up a little bit. So basically, an advent calendar is like a countdown to Christmas. Uh, it's it's kind of like a regular calendar, uh, except it's usually only got 24 or 25 days, and, and it's on like a really thin box. And each day is like a little door that you open up, and inside there's, it could be anything from just a, a little saying or, or a Bible verse, or even a little gift inside. That's kind of the, the more popular ones these days. You got something inside. Uh, as a kid, I had uh, little chocolates in my advent calendar, and we'd go through, and, and then on the corresponding day, so the first day of December, you'd open up number one, and there's your little gift, right? And then you'd go through all the way down to the end of the, the calendar, which was usually the, the 24th or the 25th, and of course, that one was the, the, the biggest door with the biggest gift. And, and so it all worked to, to, to build anticipation and expectation for Christmas. And as a church, we actually do a, a similar thing, although it's a little bit different. Now, of course, we don't, we don't meet every day. We only meet weekly. And so instead of counting day, down the days for Christmas, we count down the weeks. And so today is actually the, the first week as we count down towards Christmas, four weeks before Christmas. Uh, and so we have an Advent wreath with these five candles that kind of represent each week as we go through, with, of course, with the fifth one being uh, the, the final one on Christmas Day. Uh, and so we, we light each candle, and these candles, each, they're, they're symbolizing something for us. They, they not only you know, build anticipation for Christmas as we get closer and closer, but they remind us of the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. You know, it's so easy just to get caught up in, in all the Christmas activities, the, the shopping and the, the family get-togethers and all the, the festivities that we enjoy, and those are all good things. But we get caught up in those things, and so often we, we forget to really put much thought into what Christmas is all about. Christmas is a time to remember and to celebrate the, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why we call it Christmas. It's right in the name, right? Christmas, Christ the Mass. And so these Advent candles, uh, each reminding us of a different aspect of the true meaning of Christmas, uh, help us remember that Jesus truly is the reason for the season. Um, and so that's why over these next five weeks, we're going to take a, a little bit of a break from our, our journey through the book of Acts, and we're going to just talk through the, the meaning behind each of these uh, different Advent candles. So what is Christmas really all about? And of course, I realize that uh, I'll probably not be saying anything that most of you haven't already heard many times before, but I think if, if you're like me, it could probably use the reminder. So on that note, let's pause here for a word of prayer and ask God to remind us or even to teach us something new from his word this morning. Dear God, we thank you so much for your, your goodness and your kindness. Uh, we thank you uh, for your love for each one of us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, uh, who came into this world, born as a, as a human baby, and then he lived that sinless life. He died on a cross and rose again, all so that we can have life with you forever. God, may we not forget that as we go through this Christmas season. And God, we pray that as we look at this, this candle, uh, the candle of hope, uh, that we would be reminded all over again uh, of the, the, the truths that you've said in your word about who you are, about how you work in this world and what you want for our lives. Uh, help us to, to be reminded of those things, uh, and may we uh, be encouraged to, to continue living in a way that honors and glorifies you. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, we did already hear from the MacArthur family that this first candle that we lit up uh, is the candle of hope, or the, the prophecy candle, as it is sometimes called. Uh, they also mentioned, if you recall, that, that over one quarter of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And that, that might 
kind of surprise some of you when you hear that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, right? You got history, you got poetry and, and songs, you got letters, all that kind of stuff. You know, is the Bible really more than 25% prophecy? Well, I would say absolutely, without a doubt. See, prophecy isn't just, you know, those, those strange visions in, in Daniel and in Revelation that we read about in about the end times, nor are they the, the Old Testament messages from guys like, you know, Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah that kind of pro- prophesy all kinds of doom and gloom. Uh, that's part of it for sure. Um, but prophecy really just includes every promise of God. It's all the things that God has said that he is going to do or that he's going to make happen. Uh, And the point of all those prophecies uh, are to point us to Jesus. They're to give us hope. And these prophecies, these promises run throughout the scripture, right from, from Genesis to Revelation. And so this morning, I just want to run through some of those promises of God in the Bible and, uh, and how Jesus has fulfilled or will fulfill each and every one of them. And so I want to start at the beginning, uh, one of the very first promises of God that we read in the Bible, and, and perhaps even one of the most important promises uh, of God in the Bible, is found in Genesis chapter 3, of all places. Now just to, to give you the context here, most of you are familiar with this, but in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we, we read about how God just created this, this beautiful world for mankind. It, it, was, it was absolutely amazing, right? Everything that God created, he declared to be good, right? There was no bad at all. You know, at this point, uh, sin and death were not part uh, of the equation of life. There's no sickness, no pain, no, no sorrow, no broken relationships. I mean, it really was heaven on earth. Um, and for Adam and Eve, who were the, the, the pinnacle of God's creation, life was as good as it could possibly get. But as we continue reading into Genesis chapter 3, we see how Adam and Eve rejected God. And they rejected his authority, and they chose instead to believe Satan's lie, that they could become like God himself. And as a result, sin and and all of its terrible consequences entered the world. Uh, And this was a disaster beyond anything that we can even really wrap our heads around. You know, all of God's good creation was now tainted with sin. Life would become very difficult and filled with pain. Uh, In fact, mankind, who who was created in God's own image, created to embody God's goodness, uh, they were now sinful and selfish. Their relationship with God was severed, uh, even though God was the source of their life. And they began to die and decay, both physically and spiritually. This really was the, the most devastating disaster in all of history. But this is where we get the first promise of God, and it's a promise of hope. In the aftermath of all of this, uh, God speaks uh, to the serpent in uh, Genesis 3.15, and he says, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, at first glance, that may not seem to be very significant. I mean, it kind of sounds like mankind and serpent kind, we're we're not going to get along very good after this. But as you read through the rest of the scriptures, you you begin to see that there was a lot more to this statement than what just meets the eye. This was actually a fantastic promise of hope. Even though Adam and Eve, through their one act of disobedience and rebellion against God, they set the world down the path of sin and selfishness and suffering and ultimately destruction, God had a plan to intervene and to make things right again. This promise of an offspring of the woman who would strike the serpent's head and that the serpent would strike their heel, this was all a promise to be fulfilled in Jesus. If you jump ahead a couple thousand years, this is what we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. 
This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Several thousand years after Adam and Eve lived and died, God was going to send his own son, Jesus, to be born into the world to the, to the great, 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 however many other greats there are, granddaughter of, of, of Eve uh, to a virgin named Mary. And this baby, Jesus, would grow up, and he would live a sinless life, and he would allow himself to be put to death on a cross by sinful men. Uh, the, the serpent striking the heel would be Jesus' death on that cross. But the striking of the serpent's head would be Jesus' resurrection and his ultimate victory over Satan and sin and, and over death itself. What God was telling Adam and Eve was that there was coming a day when he would undo the damage that was done. He was going to turn things back to the way things were that he had, had originally designed, where sin and death were no longer part of the equation. Uh, once again, there would be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more broken relationships. It would once again be heaven on earth. But of course, that didn't all happen at the cross. Yes, victory over sin, over Satan, and over death, that was won by Jesus' death and resurrection. But you might have noticed that things are not back to the way they were, right? Sin seems to be just uh, as present as ever in our world, maybe even more so. Uh, everyone here suffers the consequences of sin. We, we suffer the consequences of our own sin. We suffer the consequences of others' sin. So, so what's going on here? What happened? Well, it's important to note that the, the striking of the serpent, uh, that was only one of God's promises. So let me, let me show you another one. And this is a promise that God made to King David. Now, just to give you a little bit of the background to this, uh, most of you know, King David was just a, a tremendous king, a man after God's own heart. Uh, and through his life, uh, he had conquered basically all of Israel's enemies. He had peace on every side by the time he had kind of reached the end of his life. And so he wanted to build a temple to honor God and, and basically to, to give God a permanent home in Israel, so to speak. However, God told David that he was not to be the one who would build a house for God, but actually God was going to build a house for him. It says in 2 Samuel 7, uh, starting at verse 8, Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. And this is kind of the key verse here. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This last part is significant. God promises that he's going to establish David's house, David's throne, and his kingdom 
forever. And forever, I think, is kind of the, the key word here that, that tells us there's more here than what just meets the eye. You know, this is not just God telling David that he's going to have generation after generation after generation of kings who will rule the nation of Israel. Because actually, as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we see that that actually doesn't happen. Uh, before too long, uh, the, the Assyrians come in and the Babylonians come in and kind of wipe out Israel for the most part. And so we see that David's royal family does not continue to rule forever and ever and ever. So there's got to be more to this promise than what we just see here. And of course, there is. Uh, the prophet Isaiah actually gives us a little bit more insight into this. Uh, he writes in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So here we have the, the promise that an ancestor of David, one who's called Mighty God and, and the Everlasting Father, he will rule with justice and fairness for all eternity. All right, so this obviously isn't a, a dynasty of kings. This is one very unique king ruling forever. And this is the, the king that the, the Israelites had been hoping for, for for centuries, right? In the 700-some the years after Isaiah's prophecy, Israel was repeatedly conquered by other nations. They were ruled by the Babylonians and by the Persians and by the Greeks and, and by the Romans. You know, they longed for God to send them this, this prince of peace that uh, he had promised to come and rule over them from the throne of David forever. And, and about uh, a thousand years after God's original promise to David, we read about another promise in Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to start at verse 26, but I want you to watch for the, the subtle and the not-so-subtle hints that, about how this promise was going to fill both God's promise to David as well as the prophecy in Isaiah. It says in verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. You know, as you just read through this passage, you can't help but notice how clearly the Bible tells us that all of these promises were about to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not only would Jesus be the one who would strike the serpent and conquer sin and death, but he'd also be the one who would rule from the throne of David forever, right? He would be the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, who would rule for all eternity. His kingdom would never end. Now, of course, that all begs the question, well, 
Where is this kingdom now? And actually, Jesus' own disciples had that very same question after his resurrection. Uh, they had realized that Jesus was indeed the one promised through all the Old Testament scriptures, that he was going to strike the serpent and, and do away with sin and death. Uh, he was going to rule from David's throne for eternity. And so they assumed, you know, after his resurrection, obviously, now's the time for this kingdom to happen. And so we read in Acts 1, verse 6, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? You know, this is the obvious question. Here we have Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one that God had promised to, to Adam and Eve would, would uh, strike the serpent. The one God had promised to King David would, would be king forever. And so, of course, the disciples ask, you know, is the, is the time now? Are, are you going to take your rightful place as king forever? Are you going to wipe out Satan and sin and, and make all things right again? And you would think that after Jesus' death and resurrection that the answer would be, yes, it's finally time. But no, it wasn't. Not yet. Jesus responds in verse 7. He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men stu suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if, if I were a disciple in that situation, I'd probably be just a little bit confused right about now. I mean, just moments ago, they were standing with the Messiah, the one that God had promised literally thousands of years ago. You know, and they'd seen him do miracles. They'd seen him heal the sick and, and, uh, and walk on water. They'd seen him die and then rise again from the grave. So clearly, Jesus was the one who was going to make all things right again. And then he leaves them. He goes back up into heaven, and they're left standing there wondering, well, what just happened here? Because it seemed like nothing had changed, right? Like Jesus hadn't finished his job. You know, he was supposed to be king for all time, but they were still under the rule of the Romans. He was supposed to crush Satan's head and do away with sin and all of its consequences. But there's still pain and suffering in the world. He was supposed to make all things right again, but the world seemed just as messed up as it ever was. So what's the deal? Well, this is where 2 Peter comes in. Uh, Peter gives us some insight in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You know, the, the reason that it seemed like Jesus hadn't finished the job, uh, the reason that he hadn't wiped out sin and, 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 all, and all those consequences and made everything right again was because he was being patient for our sake. He wanted everyone to have a chance to, to repent of their sin and to turn to him for forgiveness and life. You know, that's why he commissioned his disciples to go and, and be his witnesses, to tell people about him everywhere, right? That's why God has commissioned us to be his witnesses, to, to go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, teaching them to obey everything that he's taught us. God wants everyone to repent, to be saved from all their sins and its terrible consequences. You see, we all follow the, the example of our ancestor, Adam. Right? We believe the lie that we can be our own God. Right, We're the king of our own little kingdom. 
We believe that all those, all those lies that Satan told to, to Adam and Eve, we buy those things, hook, line, and sinker. But the fact is, Jesus Christ is king. He's the one and only Lord of all. And one day, every person on earth will acknowledge that. Uh, Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, verses 6 through uh, 11. He says, Though he was God, speaking of Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, as the king of creation, Jesus has every right to, to just to, to force us to acknowledge him as king. But he, he chooses not to, at least not yet. You know, we're currently in that, that short period of grace where we have the opportunity to willingly acknowledge Jesus Christ as our king and as our savior before the time comes when we will be obligated to bow our knee and to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we acknowledge him both as our king and as our judge. You know, God's promise to wipe out sin still stands. You know, he will make all things right again, but just not quite yet. God is being patient for our sake, for your sake. He wants to redeem and restore as many sinners as possible. God wants everyone to, to hear this message of hope. And so this morning, I just want to challenge and encourage you. You know, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ uh, for the forgiveness of your sins and you've acknowledged him as your Lord and your Savior, then I just want to encourage you that Jesus is coming back. He will take his place as king forever. He will crush Satan and remove all sin from his presence forever. And what an incredible hope that is. However, those very same truths can stand as a warning for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who have not acknowledged him as their Lord and Savior. Jesus is coming back. He will take his place as king forever. He will crush Satan and remove all evil from his presence forever. Now, it's the very same truth, but it carries very different consequences, doesn't it? But the good news is that either way, right now, there is hope. You know, despite our sinfulness, we can choose to accept God's gift of forgiveness. Jesus Christ, God's own son, the, the baby in the manger, he paid for all of our sins when he died on that cross. And simply by trusting in him, we can exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness. It's an amazing gift, and it's available to every single one of us here today. All of us can have this incredible hope. You know, as Jesus said, we don't know the, the times and the dates for his return, but his return is certain. And so I just urge you to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, even today. I, I want to close by showing you just one of my, my favorite verses. I, I read this one fairly often for you. It's, it's a wonderful reminder of the hope of, of what we have to look forward to. It's Revelation 21, and I'll start at verse 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death 
or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the hope of Christmas. This is why we celebrate. Because of that little baby named Jesus, born some 2,000 years ago, we have the, the hope of eternal life with God forever where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, just everlasting, abundant life with our Creator, just as God intended it. Now, that's a gift worth celebrating. Dear God, we thank you so much for just your incredibleness, uh, for the fact that you created us, that you loved us, and even when we went our own selfish, sinful way, you still loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life with you just the way that you intended from the beginning. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's yet to acknowledge you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would make that choice today. And God, may we all be able to look forward, not with, not with fear or dread to see you face to face, but with joy and anticipation to stand before the, the one who died for us because he loves us so much. And we can look forward to just an eternity, never-ending joy of being in your presence. God, we thank you so much for all these wonderful things. Uh, remind us of them often as we go through our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.